Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close. I'm glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask the questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available. And now, let's get into today's podcast. It's my uh, pleasure today to be talking to someone who has contributed more to the world of magic and the world of memory than uh, just about anyone, and I'm referring to Harry Lorraine, who after, uh, I guess, uh, just about a 70-year career, still seems going strong and uh, full of energy, and I'm delighted to talk to him. Uh, Thanks for uh, doing this, Harry. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to hear your voice, Michael. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. I am interested. Um, You were, uh, just to fill in some background from people, uh, the story of how you became interested in magic and you saw a trick as a youngster and sat down and uh, obtained nefariously the money to uh, get a deck of cards and figure it out yourself. Um, you were fortunate, I guess, uh, to be in New York City at a very good time to be in New York City if you wanted to be around uh, high caliber magic because certainly uh, the years from the 40s in through the uh, maybe the early 70s was really a heyday for New York magic, uh, centering around uh, Vernon and uh, the people he hung around with. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Michael. The truth of the matter is, it's just the opposite. I didn't know any magicians at all until I got out of the army. That was, I was about 18. I had enlisted when I was 17 and a half. So I didn't know any, uh, and I lived, uh, well, I was going to say New York City. Basically, I, I, I was born on the uh, <laughs> the mean streets of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I mean, it was, it was a ghetto, Michael. I, I didn't know that word at the time, obviously, but it was, it was a terrible. But you got to understand, there was no television when I was young. We're going back many decades. I thought the whole world was uh, like that. It was, but it was, it, I'm an original dead-end kid, <laughs> born off the, uh, right off the East River on the Lower East Side. But to get specific with your question, I didn't know any magicians till I was 18, 19 years old. Wow. Um, so you, uh, you did a stint in the Army, and um, what, then you came back to New York City, and uh, what was your plan, or was there a plan for uh, staying alive, making a living, that kind of thing? Well, there, there was no plan. I, see, we have to go back to when I was very young. And I, so I'll give you my background, which I've written about before, Michael, and I hope it doesn't become you know, redundant uh, no, to your uh, subscribers. But I was the shyest kid in the world. You know, I, uh, when I started to tell that to people, they didn't believe it because obviously, Michael, I guess I've overcompensated, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I really, uh, 
to the point of sickness. I, I, I was the shyest kid in the world. Uh, uh, I got that from my mother, I guess, like mother, uh, like son. Uh, if there was a train coming, if my mother was on the tracks, she'd be too shy to re- yell help or, you know, whatever. And I, I never made eye contact. I never spoke to anybody unless they spoke to me. And I'm talking about when I was about, oh, ten and a half. 11 years old, uh, I really was the shyest kid in the world. What happened, what started, what the whole thing, what changed my life, there was a park within walking distance from where I lived called the Pitt Street Park. At least we called it the Pitt Street Park because it was on Pitt Street, but it was uh, technic- technically it was called the Hamilton Fish Park. And I used to go there after school most every uh, a day because there was a counselor there who was who, did, who took care of the kids. He taught us shuffleboard and ping pong and you know uh, paddle tennis mainly outdoor stuff. And then what happened? And uh, this was the point really. It, it was a terrible rainy day, or it started to rain when we were all already, already there. And he took us inside, and I guess he didn't know what to do with the kids, you know, what, what indoors. Anyway, long story short, he did a car trick, Michael, and that changed my life. Because when he did it, I said to myself, oh, my God, if I could do that, oh, if I could only do that. And, of course, I was too shy uh, to go up to him afterwards and ask him how he did it. Nor did I realize that you didn't ask a magician how he did his tricks. He wouldn't tell you anyway, you know. Right. Uh, but that's what happened. That's what, what you said before. I, 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 I wanted to learn how to do this. And what happened, <laughs> to get real down to the nitty gritty, I stole milk bottles. In those days, I lived in a tenement. I lived on the fifth floor of a tenement right off the... East River on the Lower East Side, and in those days, people that used milk would would put their empty bottles outside their door, and the milkman would come and take the empty bottles and replace them with full bottles. You know, the old-fashioned milk bottles with the cream on top, where the kids used to lick the cream off the top before the parents shook the bottles, you know. Right. Anyway, anyway, I stole bottles because... I don't know if it was two or three cents or a penny a bottle or whatever that when I brought to the grocery store, they gave me that penny or two. And that's what I did. I stole, literally stole. I took bottles from outside doors because I was that anxious. I had no money at all. My parents were professional poor people. I mean, we lived in a area that was all poor people, but they were tops. They were <laughs> professional poor people. So I didn't have a penny to spend. So I stole the bottles, got about 18 cents, I think was the cheapest deck of cards I was able to buy in those days. And that's what happened. That I worked out that particular trick I saw. I worked out two or three ways, other ways to do it that were even better than the ones I, uh, the one I saw. That's what started it all, Michael. I see. Um, well, you, let's see, how can I, uh, here's what, here's what I find interesting. And here's what, especially now I'm, I'm 66 years old. And for the, uh, to be 66, uh, to be 66 again, but for the, <laughs> for the guys of my generation, for the baby boomers, uh, and Jamie Swiss uh, wrote about this in, an, in a little article about you that was on the Magicana website. But there right. were really three things 
that were uh, big moments when I was a kid. And uh, one of them was getting a copy of Royal Road to Card Magic. Uh, one of them was seeing Don Allen uh, on his TV appearances back in the 60s. And the other was your first book, The uh, Close-Up Card Magic. Right. And, uh, I mean, this was a very, very big deal for me. I think I mentioned that to you in an email, that, that uh, you know, the Royal Road was fine and certainly had some great tricks in it, but uh, there was something about your book where you looked, where as you read it, you went, well, these are tricks that I can really do for people. These are tricks that... Uh, um, can we talk a little bit about the, the history of that book? Because it seems that this was coming from the repertoire that you were using uh, to make a living back in those days. Okay, yeah. Uh, again, i got to backtrack a little bit. You sure, know, sure. I don't know if I was about to say I was fortunate or unfortunate, because you mentioned, for example, the Royal Road to Card Magic. To this day, and I'm, I'm going to be 93 years old, I never read that book. I didn't know of any magic books when I was young. I, so I don't know if I was fortunate or not. I made up my own tricks in those days and whatever I could find in the library. But in those days, magic books in the library were books that had to do with magnets and uh, rope and silks, things that I wasn't interested in. I was only interested in card stuff. And if I found a book that had any card stuff in it, any card drinks in it, oh, Michael, I would sniff those pages and I would hold the book. I would check out that book and run home to read it. Uh, so those were the only things I found in magic. Now, you're asking me how I got to do close-up card magic. Quite honestly, uh, I had written one book prior to that. I, You know, again, i got to backtrack here, and if I tell you things that uh, are taking up too much time, Michael, no, you, no, no. you stop me, and I'll get, <laughs> I'll get off that tangent. I quit school when I was 16. I have no particular education at all. The fact that I can write, I always amaze myself, you know. I didn't know an adjective from an adverb when I started uh, to write. It was just... I don't know, an automatic thing. Um, my publisher of my first book for the public said to me at one point, he said, you know, Harry, you're a better editor and proofreader than my professional editors and proofreaders. How that happened, I have no concept. Uh, it's just one of those things because I'm dyslexic. That's another part of my uh, wow. history is that I... When I was a very young kid, you know, I, I've said this so often, they gave me the name, I played the game. They called me Moron because I was getting lower marks than anybody else. I don't think anybody, at least I, never heard of the word dyslexic. I don't know if my teachers in those days heard the word dyslexic. I wrote a book uh, or a little article once, or many years ago, the title had to do was was basically how bad things become good, and one of the items in it was the bad thing was that it had dyslexia. The good thing is that dyslexics dyslexia brought me into memory. That's what made me get interested in the memory area. That gave me a career. It gave me a life. You see. So anyway, as far as you ask me about close-up card magic. 
Okay, here's the story. I'm up at Tannins. I used to go to Tannins every Saturday. Mm-hmm. In those days, I don't know about now, I haven't been to a magic store in years, but in those days, the elevator door would open, and boy, there was a mob in there on Saturday afternoons. And there was no place to sit at Tannins in those days. Isn't that funny? I remember that. Everybody standing around, talking, etc. Anyway, one day... I'm up there, and everybody had left, but there was a small group, five or six people, that Jimmy Herpick, Jimmy Herpick was the guy that worked for Tenants, Mm -hmm. you know, behind the counter guy, and he was doing some magic for them. It seemed they were important people or whatever. Anyway, Lou Tannen called Jimmy and said, Jimmy, I need you. I was standing with those people on the other side of the counter, and Jimmy said to me, Harry, can can you entertain these people while I talk to Lou? And I said, sure. I walked around to the other side of the counter and started to do some magic for these people. So to make a long story short, I'm working, and it seems Jimmy was standing on the side watching me after he got through talking to Lou, watching me entertain this small group of people. When it was all over, when the people left, Jimmy, and he, this was the the keynote. This this was the what started the whole thing. Jimmy came over. He said, "Harry, can you teach the things that I just saw you do?" And in the course of those days, I always said, "Sure, you know, if, right. if somebody if somebody said, can you play the piano?'" I said, "I don't know. I never tried." You know, <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Sure." That's what became Close Up Card Magic, and I had written one book prior to that, my first book on memory training called How to Develop the Superpower Memory came out in 1956. Ah. And that, that's still out there, for God's sakes. Uh, a lot of people call it the Bible of memory training, which is amazing to me. I didn't know I could uh, write, you know. But anyway, that's, uh, to answer your specific question, that's how close-up card magic happened. You know, this is interesting, that one of the things that Lieutenant used in his advertisements for the book was a letter he got from somebody. One of the sentences of that letter was, I would like to build a cathedral where Harry Lorraine walks for his out of this universe. Well, and, I, I tell you, yeah. I, I think I mentioned this to you. I still do that trick. I, I oh, do yeah. It it's, a, it's a fantastic trick. Yeah, yeah, thank you for saying that. But this guy thought, uh, oh, there were so many things that I remember. The only reason I knew about him is because Lou used them in his ads. Uh, one guy said, if every page of that book, Close of Card Magic, went blank, except for so and so, and he would mention one or two drinks, he said it would still be worth 10 times the amount of money I paid for it. Things like that. Yeah. Well, it's, um, uh, you know, it just, uh, it has a, it's near and dear to me because it was it was a book that I learned, you know, every single thing in it, really. Uh, just about it's amazing. Thank you for saying that, Michael. It's amazing over the years. Don't forget, we're going from 1962, right. which is when the book came out. I must have gotten literally tens of thousands of testimonials from people, written or vocal or verbal or whatever, about how that book changed their lives. Uh, and, you know, I got the same thing from a lot of my memory books, and that's amazing to me. Oh, God, it's like somebody on television, when I was doing a television show, the host said to me, because he knew my background, and he said, Harry, 
how does a Lower East Side kid, a D's, Dems, and those kid from the Lower East Side with no education become the world's foremost memory training specialist? I remember, uh, he. I said, when he asked me that, I said, stomach cramps. And he went white under his makeup. You know, he, he, he thought I went nuts when I said stomach cramps. And we went into a commercial, and I said, no, no, take it easy. Uh, it, it, you know, I'm going to explain it when we come back. But the truth of the matter is, stomach cramps is what got me into becoming the world's foremost memory training specialist. Now, Michael, are you interested in that? Yeah, I, I, I would like to know what's the story behind that. Okay. I told you a, a minute ago that I was dyslexic. Yeah. One of the things about my dyslexia, A, I was getting terrible marks on any tests, and there was a Mrs. Goldfisher. I'll never forget her name. I was 10 and a half, 11 years old, and she used to give us a test every day yellow rectangular slips of paper and we'd have to number them from one to ten and then she would ask questions either on things that we were told to read about or things she had mentioned you know in the classroom and then she would grade all the papers and here's the point we had to bring them home for one at least one parent to sign it and I was getting failing grades every single day all the other kids of my class uh, you know were getting passing uh, grades uh, I don't know 75 80 I was getting 40s and 50s this is where my dyslexia is shown and we, we didn't know that was the problem but those were the grades I was getting and here's the main point my father who died when I was 12, so that tells you how far back I'm going, he was the signee. And when he looked at the grades I got, he would punch me, mm. okay? Now, I'm gonna go off on a tangent here, Michael. Uh, one time, years after this, I was on the Tonight Show, and I told this story, and I said my father would punch me. And about two or three weeks after that, uh, Alex DeCordova, who was the uh, producer of The Tonight Show, mm -hmm. called me said, Oh, Harry, we got about 10,000 pieces of mail all negative about you. And I said, Wait a minute, what did I do? He said, Oh, they're all complaining that you said your father punched you. You can't say that on television, it seems, in those days anyway. Uh, I Afterwards, when I told the story, I always said my father punished me, and that was okay. For some reason, I couldn't say your father, you can't say your father punched you. Okay, I don't know if, it, if that's the case on television today. Probably not. But that's the way it was then. Anyway, why am I telling you this story? I had stomach cramps. Here's the key. I had stomach cramps every morning. But I finally realized that I had them not every morning, only Monday through Friday, school days. Why? I was afraid of my father punching me or punishing me. Sure. Okay? That was the point. And that's what changed my life when I was asked, how did you become the world's foremost memory-creating specialist? And I said, stomach cramps. I really meant it because what I wanted to do was to avoid those stomach cramps, and the only way to avoid that was to stop my father from hitting me. And the only way I could stop that was to get 
damn it, better grades than failing grades right. are these silly tests that Mrs. Goldfisher gave us every day. So one day, walking to school, and I used to walk to school uh, every day, I stopped and said, wait a minute. Oh, my God. You know, I'm thinking about it now. And it's, I'm getting, forgive me. I'm getting a little emotional. I stopped and said, wait a minute. There's only one way that I can stop my father from hitting me, and that is to get passing grades on these damn tests that Mrs. Goldfisher is giving us. And the only way for me to do that is to remember the answers to the questions she's asking us. But then I said, how, how am I gonna how am I gonna do that? How am I gonna remember? Because in those days, you know, the questions you got that you didn't intellectualize them. I didn't know that word at that time, but that's what I was thinking. You didn't. There was no way to intellectualize the kinds of questions that you got on when you were ten and a half, eleven years old. Sure. It was a question like, uh, uh, "What's the capital of Maryland?" Well, either you knew it or you didn't. Right. Do you, you know what I'm saying? There's yeah, no way to work it, it out. It's a great memory uh, problem, rather than. Yeah, exactly. You're just and nothing to inter- right, nothing to intellectualize. So I right. said, <coughs> excuse me. I said to myself, how in the world can I solve this? How do I get rid of these stomach cramps? Stop my father. Okay. Again, long story short, I went to the library. I'll never. I'll, I can still visualize the lady behind the desk. Uh, an older woman with gray hair in a bun in a black dress. And I said, oh, I got to learn how to remember. Can you help me? Blah, blah, blah. She took me to a room. I swear there was dust cobwebs all over the door. Nobody had been in there for a hundred years. And we wiped off the cobwebs and went in and in the corner of that room was a section of books dating back to the, I don't know, 17th, 16th century on memory training on how to remember. And uh, I stay, I was in that room. The, the lady kept coming in to make sure I was okay because I stayed in that room for a couple of hours going through these books. And again, that was uh, a game changer. That was a life, cha- a life changer to, for me because the things I learned, don't forget, again, I was 10 and a half, 11 years old, so I didn't understand 99.99% of the things I was reading. Right. But the couple of things, the few things that I did understand, I changed, and I didn't know that I was, I was doing things that were kind of important. I was changing things that I was just learning to fit my problem, to solve my particular problem, and that's what I did. That's what happened. I started to apply it to the facts that Mrs. Goldfisher gave us either and think she told us to read or that she said in the classroom. And Michael, I started to get 100%, 98%, 90% of my tests, aside from the fact that my father stopped to punish me so that the stomach cramps stopped. I, one day, again, I remember walking into the classroom and Mrs. Goldfisher saying to me, Harry, what happened? All of a sudden, you're getting marks that I thought you always should get. What's happening? And I said, well, I learned how to remember. And she said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And I said, well, 
for example, if I want to remember that that, that Maryland is the capital, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that Annapolis is the capital of Maryland, I made a picture of my, in my mind. I saw an apple falling on Mary's head, and I pointed to a little girl named Mary in my classroom. Uh, an apple is, Annapolis reminded me of Annapolis falling on Mary's head, landing on Mary's head, Mary land. And as I was talking, I saw the curtain come down. This is Goldfish's eyes. And she, <laughs> and she said, okay, Harry, take your seat. <laughs> and you know, another lesson taught, Michael, I, I stopped telling this to people. I stopped explaining to people what I was doing, except as time started to go by, the kids, my friends in the, in the class, in Mrs. Goldfish's class, started to ask me about it, and they didn't think I was nuts when I told them what I was doing, because they started to apply it. And, I, and every once in a while, a kid would tell me, oh, Harry, I applied it to so-and-so to help me remember so-and-so. That's what started the whole thing. Fantastic. Fantastic. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, kind of, yeah. uh, kind of, because I, you know, years went by. I remember reading Greater Magic, and there was a section of Greater Magic on memory, and I, my basic interest changed from generally, from general memory, to memorizing cards. I started to do that. I was I was interested in card memory. I ended up being able to memorize a deck of cards, a shuffled deck of cards, as fast as somebody can call them off. That's what I was interested in. As years went by, that's another pivot point of my life. That changed my life. And we have time. I, if we have time, I can tell you that story. But I always pushed the memory kind of in the background. I thought magic was going to be my life's work. Amazing. Um, you had, uh, I mean, you, one of the good things I, and then I'll, then I'll get off the New York thing for a minute, but you did have some good pals, uh, that you were able to hang with. And uh, eventually, I mean, Howie and, uh, Ken Krenzel and people like that. Uh, so you did have some good people to be able to surround yourself with and, and do that kind of, uh, bouncing back and forth of ideas, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, I do. You mentioned Howie. I assume you mean Howie Schwartzman and yeah. Ken Krenzel. I, I wrote a book about Ken Krenzel's work called The Card Classics of Ken Krenzel. And we were very good friends. And Howie Schwartzman and I, we knew ourselves. We were friends when we were still in shorts, for God's sake. So we go back a lot of a lot of years. But the most more important as far as knowing people who are well-known in magic, when I started to go up to Tannins after I got out of the army, incidentally, I had mentioned uh, before that I had written an article about where good thing, where, where bad things become good, like dyslexia, which is obviously not a good thing. It's a bad thing, but it was good for me because it pushed me in to become a memory person. It got me interested in memory anyway. It started a career. One of the main subjects in that book was that I got typhoid fever in the army. That ain't good. But if I didn't get typhoid fever, I wouldn't be here. I would have been dead because when I got typhoid fever in the army, all, uh, again, this, these are things that are very difficult for me to talk about, Michael, so bear with me. Sure, sure. Uh, I got 
typhoid fever because I drank stagnant water, another silly story mm. while we were on a hike. And I, I, I was in the hospital when Company E of the 192nd Battalion went overseas. That was my company. All of them went overseas. You got to understand, this was in 1943, which uh, we were losing the war, Michael. In other words, this was after the, the, the Guadalcanal, the, the Bataan Death March. Anybody listening to this who is older, obviously, will, will remember these things. And we literally were losing the war at that time. I always say, if half facetiously, if they took me, we were losing the war. I mean, I, I mean come on, I weighed 109 pounds. Of, I was 17 and a half years old, uh, and I enlisted because I thought you'd get a better deal if you enlisted rather than waiting to be drafted, which I would have been anyway. But it didn't work that way because we were losing the war. I was put into IRTC. IRTC stands for Intra Infantry Replacement Training Center, which means after you're training, you went over Overseas, and any when an infantryman died or was wounded or left, you had to take his place. So it was a death squad, is what it was. Anyway, I got typhoid fever, and that saved my life because my unit went overseas. Oh God! And none of them came back. None of oh, them. Oh my! Oh my! So. When I say bad things can become good, uh, I'm not making these things up. Yeah. It's a uh, typhoid fever, for God's sake, saved my life. Crazy. Okay? Oh, wow. I, I, yeah. I, you know, I wrote this whole article. There were so many things. Like, I had to quit school at 16. Why? Because I had to, I felt, I thought I had to get up, go out, and make some money. I had to go to work. And in those days, you could quit school when you were 16. You had to go to what they called continuation school, which was a joke. They gave you a hammer and a saw, and you learned woodwork. You know, I mean, yeah. that was the continuation school. Uh, but that, again, changed my life, because if I would have stayed in school, I was studying accounting. I have nothing against accountants, but I would have ended up an accountant, which is fine, but it wouldn't have been fine for me. Certainly not as good as what I finally ended up becoming. Right. Okay, so again, a, a, a bad thing, having to quit school, kind of worked out fine for me. Anyway, again, back to the people I knew. I'm going up to Tannins, and there were always three people on the side which I ended up thinking of them as the triumvirate, okay, was Dave Vernon, John Scotty, and S. Leo Horowitz. And I had learned their names when I started to go off to Tannins, which I had found out about only after I got out of the army. And I would take a step, because I would have loved to meet them. And I would take it. I remember reading about this. It was like, uh, I'm sorry, writing about this. It was like a ballet. I would take a step toward them. And for each step I took toward them, the three of them in unison would take a step away from me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's the vision in my mind, Michael. So this went on for a while. Then I stopped trying to walk toward them. And then again, a little slight pivot point in my life. I was doing a trick for a bunch of young people, you know, my age, younger people, at the counter. Uh, so there was a little, a little crowd of young people around me, and suddenly I hear a voice behind me, 
and it's John Scotty, and he's saying, hey, kid, do that again. And what if I, I know what I was doing, but I don't want to go into that. I was doing the trick. I did it, and he yells over to Dave Vernon and S. Leo Horowitz. He says, hey, guys, come on over here. Watch this kid do this. Anyway, again, long story short, I do the trick, and I fool the hell out of the triumvirate. Now, here I am, 18 and a half years old, and I fooled Dave John Scotty, and S. Leo Horowitz. So afterwards, the next Saturday, when I came up and I took that step toward him, they did not take the step away from me. They waited for me to approach, and they said, hey, Harry, can you do another trick for us? And that started my relationship with these kinds of names and magic. It's fantastic. And you don't want to tell us what trick it was that you did, huh? Oh, yeah. I know exactly what it was. There was a uh, there was a guy in those days, I don't know if anybody in Magic will, will still remember that name, but it named Louis Zingoli. From uh, Do you know the name? Oh, absolutely. Uh, okay. There's Zingoli That's a long time ago. I, I doubt if any of the young people would, uh, would know the name. <laughs> and there was a trick called the Zingoni Spread or something yep. like that. Yep. And I met Louis Zingoni. And I, I, what he was doing, he did it very well. In other words, he would spread the deck and he would have three people point the cards. And what he did is he counted from top down to the position of those three selections. And then he gathered the spread and he would start to, he would shuffle peeling single cards counting to those cards. Well, my memory is very vague about this. I guess he did it very well, and I guess those things worked in those days, but I didn't want to do that. A, I was afraid I'd lost it up. B, I don't want to stand there peeling cards, you know? So I came up with with a move that I called the spread control. That's the move I was doing where John Scotty saw it because you spread the deck, I have fooled magicians all over the world with this, and it's one of the things I'm proudest of. That I once wrote about this also. There are very few things in magic that people come up with where there isn't some kind of basic. In other words, that where it isn't based on something that's been around for years. I did a lot of research about this and found nothing basic about this. It was a completely new idea that happened by accident. Uh, once when I was holding a deck of cards in my hands. Anyway, what it is, is you spread the deck, you have three people select cards, you gather the spread, and the three cards are on top of the deck, and you go from there. And that's what fooled Scotty and Vernon and S. Leo Horowitz. At the beginning, I was fooling a lot of young people then, but not names like that. Yeah, you put that in uh, close-up card magic, I think. I, you know, I don't recall if it was in close. You know, it's all blending in my mind. Sure, right? sure. But I, I, I remember that very well. I remember that move. I remember that move very well. Yeah, I Ricky, Ricky J. May rest in peace, used it a lot. And people all over the world used it. And, of course, I was fooling people all over the world with that. Yeah. It's such a simple thing. Uh, and, yeah, I, I, I taught it in a few books. As a matter of fact, I think it was in one of my books called Special Effects. I had a whole section of different routines you could do based on that move. Mm. And the move is a basic thing. It's a simple uh, control of three selections. Yeah. Um, 
And I think the Zingoni thing, for anybody who's listening who wants to track it down, the original Zingoni, I think, is an expert card technique. That, it may be. I'm telling you, I never read those old books. Yeah. You know, years ago, uh, well, a couple of years ago, somebody asked me if I would take books like that, you know, Erdnay's uh, uh, books and et cetera, and he would reprint them with my thoughts on them. And I said, no, I really don't want, you know, my life has been fine in the magic area without them. And I think that they were great. Millions of people say it started them and helped them in magic. I never needed them. I don't want to get into them now. Sure, sure. You have, uh, so the the one question, and then uh, I won't take uh, more of your time. This has been a great chat, and I really appreciate it. But um, so uh, all the years of, of your productivity and, 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 you know, getting this, uh, not only being a performer and going out and doing the memory stuff, but just the time and effort it takes to write and lay out, I mean, in addition to, you know, the, the books that you've done out, you have done a magazine like Apocalypse for 20 years. Right. Um, it was, was what was driving you just the fact that you weren't going to find yourself in the same situation that you grew up in? That, I mean, was that, is that the drive behind Harry Lorraine? Um, you know, it, sometimes you know, people emulate their, their parents or they get that from them, but in your case, that, that wasn't the way it happened. No, the only thing I got from my parents is how to be a poor person. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I like to say they were professional poor people. You know, Michael, I don't want to answer your question. I I think that most of the time I was talked into these things. Like I told you the story about close-up card magic, how I got into that because I was asked by Jimmy Herpick and Lieutenant to do the book. Uh... I started to, you know, I don't know how much time you've got left on this. Oh, we got, so, we got all the time you need. Okay, so if I talk too much, you stop me, please. It's one, one, of the, one of my cliches, somebody once said many years ago, it's very difficult to start Harry Lorraine, but it's harder to stop him. <laughs> so, you know, so, <laughs> so if I talk too much, uh, Michael, you, you just tell oh, me and I'll no stop. Uh, the, point, the point is, how did I get into these things? Look, I was doing table magic at a place called Billy Reed's Little Club in New York City. It was a nightclub kind of thing. People came in for late dinners. In those days, New York City was a late city. I don't know how it is now, but, you know, people would come in and professional people. I met Eddie Fisher there, for example. We became kind of friends. I I met Elliot Roosevelt there. The people of that ilk who finished their visits, like Eddie Fisher was working at the Paramount. Paramount. In those days, they had live shows at the theaters in uh, New York City. So a lot of the acts that worked uh, that did these live shows would come to places like Billy Reed's Little Club after they were through working, you know, to relax, have a drink or two. So that was one, two o'clock in the morning. And I was doing table magic in in that place. And I would meet these kind of people. And uh, I worked for tips. I had been asked originally by Billy Reed, who I thought was the owner of the place, I found out after a while it was people uh, with crooked noses and flapping ears that owned right. it. He was just, he was, you know, he, 
he was just the manager of the place. But anyway, he had asked me if I wanted salary or work on uh, tips. I said, I'll work on tips. And that was the smart move because, give you one example, I Frank Sinatra used to come in and he would tip me. Why is that a good thing? Frank Sinatra only carried $100 bills. So the only tip you could get from him was uh, if he gave you a, a cash tip, was a $100 bill. Yeah. So uh, working for tips was wide. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you this, I thought I was 19 years old, I guess, and I thought this would be my life. Magic would be my life. And I did standard things at each, you know, the same thing at each table. And one day, an actor by the name of Victor Jory, who was well-known at that time, I don't know how many people remember him now, he played uh, Helen Keller's father in the movie The Miracle Worker, which I'm familiar with because one of my closest friends, Annie Bancroft, was in the movie she played Helen Keller's a teacher, Annie right. Sullivan, and she won the Academy Award in 1962 uh, for that movie. So I, but anyway, so Victor Jory was kind of well-known. Anyway, he came in and he, with a friend, and I did. Uh, he called me to his table, and I did magic. Comes in a few days later with a different friend, and long story short, he came in, I don't know, 12, 15 times with a different friend each time because he was showing me off to his friends, which is very nice. But one of the things I wanted to do each time was to do at least one trick that Victor hadn't seen yet. And what happened, again, remember, I was 19 years old, so my magic knowledge was finite. I know a certain amount, you know, nowadays you give me a deck of cards, or at least up to a few years ago, I could go on forever because I made the things up as I went along. Right. But not when I was not dead, not when I was 19 years old. So it got to a point that here, here is the point. I, I ran out of card tricks to show Victor Jory. So the next time he came in, the only thing I had left to show him was a thing I did with cards, but not a card trick, but a memory stunt with cards. And to me, honestly, in those days, to me, that was like scratching the bottom of the barrel. You know, it, was, it wasn't something I thought was as good as my ambitious card routine, you know, right. or things like that. Anyway, that's what I had left to show him. And okay, I'll, I'll tell you the effect very quickly. Uh, I said, Victor, would you shuffle the deck? And I'll call him off to me fairly quickly. And he did. I, I would snap my fingers. And to tell him when I had the card, and it was really pretty rapidly. He called off the shuffle deck, and then I said, okay, uh, Victor, give me any number for 1 to 52. He said, seven. I said, jack of clubs. I said, count to the seventh card, but don't misplace the order of the cards. Sure enough, there was, in other words, I remember the position of every card. I did that three times. Like, give me another number, 25. That's the uh, four of hearts, and he count, and there it was. I did that three times. Then, then I would say, name any card. And he'd say, okay, the, eighth, the uh, two of clubs. And I'd say, that's the 12th card. And he'd count, and there it was. I did that three times. And the closing piece that I did, I'd say, do you play poker? He said, yes. I said, what is the best hand in poker? He said, royal flush. I said, correct. What's your favorite suit? Clubs, hearts, spades, and diamonds? He said, spades. I said, fine. Look at the 18th, 23rd, 43rd, 45th, and 50th card. And he did, and there was the royal flush in spades. Okay, that was the trick. Well, I did this for him. Uh, 
Michael Lacky stood up in the little club, which was a little club, because when he started to rave about he just saw everybody else heard him, you know. Yeah. And he started to rave, and he said, Harry, all the sleight of hand that you have done for me over the weeks, over these months, have been fantastic. The contracts, blah, blah, blah. He said, but what you just did, and here's the pivot point, he started to rave about the memory thing. That changed my life because the light bulb went off. You know, wait a minute. He thinks this is more, much more impressive than the card stuff. I thought the card tricks I was doing were great. And fine, very nice. He raved about them, but more about the memory stuff. I'll be done. That changed my life. That a whole different thing happened because I started to show that to people and realize the importance of it, yeah. and that that is what started my adventure into the world of memory trading. Well, it has been a great treat to talk to you again. Uh, we haven't seen each other in a, in a very long time. I told you in an email I have fond memories of uh, meeting you in Indianapolis. Uh, 40 years ago as you were on a book tour and uh, God, really is, it little, 40, is it 40 years ago? Uh, probably a little more than that. Cause I was in college, which was in the mid seventies. You were in your twenties. Yeah, I was, I was in my twenties then and, um, uh, drove you around and you showed me stuff from, uh, afterthoughts, which was about to be published. And I think that came out in 75. So that's something like I, that. Yeah. yeah. So I, that's how I sort of date it. And we, had dinner with my mentor, Harry Reiser, in the evening. But it's, oh, uh, it's so good to uh, hear your voice and to hear uh, hear you strong and going strong. And uh, we uh, we hope you uh, we have you around a whole lot longer. Well, like I always say, I'm still kicking and screaming, Michael, but nowhere near as hard or as loud as I used to. Well, I think you're, <laughs> uh, you, you are uh, certainly entitled to take it a little easier, my friend. Okay. <laughs> well, hopefully I haven't bent your ear too much. Michael. No, no, no. It's been great, and I thank you so much for it. Um, talking to Harry Lorraine, everybody. Thank you, Harry. It's been a pleasure. Uh, well, it's been my pleasure, Michael. Thank you.